Our scripture reading this morning is from Acts 7 verse 51 to Acts 8 verse 4. It's printed in your bulletins or you can find it uh, in your Bible or Bible apps. Acts 7, verse 51. Used uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Then Acts 8. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in, Jer in Jerusalem. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for uh, praying and uh, reading for us, Johan. Um, we are again in, a, in this series on Acts. We've been making our way through the book of Acts. And you'll remember that a few weeks ago I said uh, that one of the things the church needs, in my opinion anyway, in our modern world is a robust theology of suffering. Now that's not a popular thing to try to to teach people, teach them how to suffer well. But I said that, that, that we needed that because one of the things that our culture has been teaching us over the last number of decades is, is that you need to avoid suffering at all costs because suffering of any type is always bad. And the reality is, is that that's just a naive, a naive approach to life because suffering is unavoidable. There's not a single person in this room who will not suffer to some degree at some point in their lives. And therefore, we need to be prepared to face that suffering. On top of that, we need a good theology of suffering because down through the ages, philosophers, theologians, gurus, people like that, they have agreed that um, it is primarily actually through suffering that we grow, that we build character, that we develop as people. And 
you know, just from personal experience, maybe as a pastor, uh, you, you maybe have these kinds of experiences as well. I've got to admit, they, because they've not had to face with any kind of real grit hardships in lives and therefore they're maybe not necessarily very compassionate towards other people they're not necessarily very um, empathetic they're they're not always that wise and so one of the best things we can do as a church is develop for ourselves a strong solid theology of suffering and and not only develop it for ourselves but teach our children how to face suffering well that's one reason we should, but the other reason that we need a good theology of suffering is because as we're seeing throughout the book of Acts, it is through suffering that God has grown his church. Throughout the early church, but also throughout church history, you can see example after example after example that as Christians face suffering well, as they face persecution well, as they face tragedy and hardship well, the church seems to flourish. And we've been trying to figure out together over the last little while, how, how does the, the church make an impact in our very modern, very secular, very bored with religion, oh, religion is so passe kind of culture that we find ourselves in. And, and suffering is a piece of the puzzle. So happy Father's Day. We're going to look together at the life of Stephen, and we're going to consider the place of suffering in the life of the church. And if, if you're, again, I, I, I feel bad sometimes for, for non-Christians when they come to church here, because they don't get a very good sales pitch. If you're a non-Christian and you're thinking, oh great, this is what Christianity is in the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to deal with suffering that are not available anywhere else, in fact. And so that my prayer for you is that you would actually be attracted to Christianity because of what it has to say about suffering. So here we go. We're going to look at this uh, passage together. We're going to see it under three headings. You can see that in the sermon notes on, on the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at the cause of suffering, and we're going to start right into it right now. So first of all, the cause of Christian suffering. Who, who is Stephen? Uh, we didn't read about Stephen from Acts chapter 6. We just got to this part where Stephen dies in Acts chapter 7. And so let me just back up and let you know that, that Stephen was one of the very first deacons. These were a group of men that were set apart for the purpose. He was a man who was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He was a godly man. He was a man of deep conviction and faith. And he was, in fact, actually quite a preacher as well. We read back in Acts chapter 6 that he refuted uh, the Jews and argued with the Jews so well that, that he just made them furious and angered them so that they dragged him to the Sanhedrin, which was the uh, religious authority of the day, and, and they made accusations against him. And then Acts chapter 7 records this sermon that Stephen preaches before these religious authorities. Now, I remember, okay, I remember when I was going through the process of ordination, you'd have to go to what's called presbytery, which is a, a group of churches, a meeting with all these other ministers and all these other elders and stuff, and you'd have to preach in front of them. It's very intimidating to preach to a room full of preachers. But Stephen 
just lets fly. And in fact, this sermon that he preaches in Acts 7, it's the longest sermon recorded in the entire New Testament. And basically his point in his sermon is this. Jesus Christ has replaced the law. He has fulfilled it and replaced it. And he has fulfilled and replaced the temple. And this made them furious. In verse 54, it says... And my, my translation's a bit different than, than your bulletin, so, but it's basically the same thing. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. I think it says in yours, they gnashed their teeth at him. Literally, where it says they were enraged, it says that, that they, their hearts were ripped open. Have you ever been so mad that you feel like your heart's going to explode? This is how they were. Why were they so furious with him? that they ground their teeth at him, that their, their jaws were clenched in anger at him, and they, they thought about murdering him. Well, it's because Stephen preached to them boldly and plainly. Verses 51 through 53, it says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Keep it. So here's, here's what Stephen's doing. He stands up in front of the religious leaders, a group of preachers and experts in the Old Testament, and he basically says, you guys are rebels. You think you're okay, you think that you're in God's good graces, but you are not. You have always been resisting God. You've always have, and you can continue to do so now. You do not obey His will when He sends preachers and prophets to you and messengers to remind you of what His will is. You ignore them, and sometimes you even turn around and kill them. And then you went and took the righteous one, that's a reference to Jesus Christ, as the fulfillment of the law, you see, the righteous one, the one who could finally complete and, and obey the law perfectly. You got a hold of him and you murdered him too. You see, Stephen does not sugarcoat anything. He doesn't come to the end, see, that's the end of the sermon, right, that we just read. He doesn't come to the end of the sermon and, and say, now, in conclusion... A little application for you, in my opinion, and, and, you know, take it for what it's worth. Do with it what you want, but I have a few growth areas for you to consider. He doesn't do that. He tells them plainly, he tells them boldly, he tells them clearly. Now, I hope that, that this church, Grace Valley, as risky as it will be in the coming year, fair bit already, and, and you know, we've had... We've had people who have come and gone as a result of that. They've come because they've loved the worship, and that's understandable because our worship is beautiful and powerful, and uh, they love the community, um, but they don't love the preaching because it's too extreme, it's too clear-cut, it's too black and white, it's too you're for Jesus or you're against Jesus, and we live in an age where that is not popular. We live in an age where that is that grates upon our cultural sensibilities. Stephen had no problem with that. It grated on their cultural sensibilities too. 
And we'll see that as we continue. Let's, let's go a little further. So he, he not only spoke boldly and plainly, but he spoke boldly and plainly about their sin. That whole sermon, okay, is a retelling of Israel's history. It's a retelling of their constant refusal to trust, to love, to obey God. Now here's something I want you to consider. Most people who don't follow Jesus Christ or most people who have been raised in the church and eventually drift away, let's say, or wander from the Christian faith, most people who reject the gospel, whether they've heard it all their lives or they're only hearing it for the first time, they don't reject it because they have intellectual objections to Christianity. That may be what they tell you. I can't believe in things like the resurrection or miracles or something like that. Or because they've been hurt by the church. You'll hear that a lot as well. Well, I was hurt by the church. I was turned off by the church. I was not loved by the church. And there may be truth to the fact that they were hurt by the church and turned off by the church and not loved by the church. That may actually be true. But if you dig a little deeper, you realize it's not the hurting and it's not the intellectual objections. What it really boils down to is it's self-will. They want things that God has said no to. It's actually that it is only by the grace of God that you are still walking in faith because there are lots of things that you would really prefer to do sometimes to that and say yes to his will even though you're deep down in your soul you're like, I don't get why you're saying no. I don't understand why you're saying no. It makes no sense to me that you're saying no. Your no seems to cost me too much. But somehow by his grace you're still holding on by your fingertips. Listen, if, if we live in an age of radical individualism, where to the point where we don't want anything to def outside of us to tell us what to do, even define who we are in any way, we live in an age where we want all restrictions uh, removed to tell people that they're accountable to a God, of course they're going to hate it. Of course. And if you are not a Christian here, and, and you're here this morning, let, let me just say, look, you, you, you are under God's anger. You are. And that doesn't mean, even if you're a religious person and you've been going to church for a long time, if you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, that means you are not a follower of him. And, and that means that you do sit under God's anger. And, and all your life, right up to the present moment, even right now, God has been so patient and so kind. He's been reaching out to you. He's sending you messengers. He's sending you signs. He's trying to show you how much he loves you. And you have kept saying no, 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 no. You've beat them up. Maybe you've even told them to shut, literally, the hell up. Because you don't want to hear it anymore. Maybe you've gnashed your teeth at them. Here is Jesus. Right now, here is God again, reaching out to you. You know, the Bible says that God wants no one to perish. Listen to him. He said that Jesus was the Son of God. In verse, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. You see, 
That was the last straw. He, he was not saying Jesus is the final prophet and a great prophet. He was not saying that he is uh, the, the wisest who has ever lived. No, he is saying that he is God himself. He sees Jesus at the right hand of God. That means he deserves worship. He deserves obedience. He deserves allegiance. And back then, to say that was blasphemy because God alone, who is unseen, was to be worshipped. But today, to say that is blasphemy too because it's so exclusive and narrow-minded. All this is to say, listen, the gospel is both personally offensive to each individual, but it's also culturally offensive because it goes against the grain of our worldview and it will cause a reaction. It will. That was the cause of Stephen's suffering. Okay. Number two, the cause of Stephen's courage or the cause, what was it called? What's my point? The courage behind Christian suffering. There we go. The courage behind Christian suffering. Stephen gets stoned, the story tells us. Now, how that worked would be you'd have to take him outside the city, which they did, and you'd have to put him in a pit or a valley that's what, at least 12 feet deep, and then you start throwing rocks. Now, stoning is a slow death, okay? It is tiring to kill someone by stoning, especially someone who's probably as healthy and strong as Stephen. So it took a long time for these men. This was not just a outburst of anger. You ever been so mad that you took a swing at somebody and then you went, what am I on here? I gotta get a hold of myself. That's not the situation here. They're so mad that they can throw him in a pit and they can take time, perhaps hours, throwing rocks at him as hard as they can this is deliberate, this is, this is intentional, this is with grit and determination. It took a long time, and as they, as they were smashing his legs or cracking his ribs or shattering his skull with these rocks, Stephen responds unbelievably. He has this vision of the heavens opening up, and he sees, as he said, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And as he's dying, he says, he says, receive my, what does he say? He says, Lord, receive, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, verse 58. And then, as he's dying in verse 60, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that sound like? Doesn't it remind you of Jesus dying on the cross? He's using the same language of love that Jesus used as he dies. And you know, sometimes when somebody dies, you see their heart. You, you get to see because, you know, all, the, all the, the veneers that we put on, all the facade that we put up to, to kind of keep ourselves together so that other people have a certain perspective about us, all that stuff starts to get stripped away. When you're about to die, you just are who you are. And who you are is laid absolutely bare. And what you see when Stephen is laid absolutely bare is Christ. Is the love of Jesus. He got this power, he got this courage from this vision of Jesus Christ. But you see, it's how he saw Jesus. It's not just, oh, I see Jesus. It's how he saw Jesus that empowered him to face this suffering the way he did. Do you notice that he called Jesus the Son of Man? 
I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now that is very unique in the New Testament. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man over and over and over again. But almost nobody else ever refers, I think Stephen actually is the only other person in the New Testament who refers to him as the Son of Man. And the reason Stephen did is because he's thinking about Daniel sees God on his throne, the ancient of days. And then in January 7, verse 13, he says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, with the clouds of heaven, sorry, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In ancient cultures, okay, the throne room was also the courtroom. Here we have separation of powers, right? And so, when you go to the prime minister's office, you're not going to the Supreme Court. In ancient cultures, they were the same place. So the throne room was the courtroom. And here, Stephen looks into that Jesus is going to vindicate him, Stephen, in the only court that really, really matters. It's as if he's saying to his killers, look, you hate me, you condemn me, but you cannot ultimately judge me because he does and he will vindicate me in his eternal court in the court that really matters if you have ever been falsely accused of something and you've not been able to make a defense there are very few things in this life as frustrating as having a group of people having a courtroom having an individual Think something about you that is absolutely false, absolutely untrue. It has ruined your reputation with them. You have been besmirched before them, and there is nothing you can do about it. And you think, this is so unfair. This is so unjust. This is so wrong. But there's nothing I can do about it. I'm completely and utterly powerless. It is, it is so frustrating to live with that. But here is Stephen, and, and you can take this to the bank yourself. Here is you knowing that the God who made the heavens and the earth, he is the ultimate judge in the courtroom that really matters, the courtroom of the last day, and he vindicates you. And do you notice it says that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's that he is seated at the right hand of God. Even the Apostles' Creed, creed right? We say, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Here it says Jesus is standing. Why? Throne room's a courtroom. The throne room's a courtroom. What does a person who's standing in a courtroom do? What are they doing? Jesus is pleading on Stephen's behalf. Jesus is arguing his case before the throne of God Almighty. Jesus is speaking on his behalf. F.F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, he said that while Stephen was confessing Jesus before men, he looked up and he saw Jesus confessing his servant Stephen before God. 
Jesus is saying to God, this is my friend, this is my brother, this is the one whom I love. I commend him, I receive him, I delight in him. And Stephen saw that and his face was like that of an angel in the court that really, really mattered because he was not being condemned, he was being commended. Now listen, if you've been struggling to listen, please start listening now. Because yes, this is about suffering for Jesus Christ, for for the gospel, and this is the source of the power of all gospel-centered churches that are willing to take a hit for the name of Jesus Christ. Beside the throne of God himself and is interceding on your behalf. But listen, your own personal experience, my own personal experience may not be that you are suffering specifically for the case of Jesus Christ, but I do know that you are suffering. Some of you are suffering wicked bad right now. I know that. And then there's many of you who are suffering wicked bad, and I don't know that. And you are feeling the weight and feeling the pressure of your suffering, and you are wondering, how long is this going to go on? Because I cannot endure this. I cannot hang in there. I can't. Listen to me. You need this vision. Not just the vision of Jesus on a cross. You need a vision of a crucified Jesus, risen and standing before the throne of the almighty God of the universe who reigns over absolutely everything. And he is right now speaking on your behalf, pleading your case. Romans 8, one of those beautiful passages about suffering, says in verse 34, Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us right now. Right now. Think about this. You're at home in your living room and life feels utterly overwhelming and you're at the end of your rope and you don't know what to do and you fall on your knees and you start to pray and you don't even know how to get the words out of your mouth because it's so overwhelming. Imagine if you could hear Jesus Christ in the room next to you praying on your behalf. What kind of courage would that take? What kind of courage would that give you? If you could actually hear Jesus in the next room pleading on your behalf, saying everything you can't get out of your mouth as you sob and wail and plead. That's precisely what is happening. That's what Stephen saw. That's what you need to see. Jesus did. There's, there's consequences. The face of your suffering the way Stephen did, there's consequences. There's, there's, there's repercussions. I used consequences because I wanted three C's, you know? The preacher's folly. Results or repercussions probably would have been better. But when the church suffers well, when you as a Christian suffer well, you know what happens? It changes the world. Think about this. This is a long sermon, right? Not mine. Stevens. That's a long sermon. Why do we know it? Word for word. Luke's the author of Acts. He's also the author of Luke. Luke says, 
when he wrote his books, he investigated everything and he talked to eyewitnesses. So the only way that we would get these words was through Luke speaking to eyewitnesses. Now, who were the eyewitnesses? Would he, would he talk to the members of the Sanhedrin and the rulers and say, hey, could you tell me that sermon that Stephen wrote? Remember when you guys killed him? What was that sermon that, that he preached? Of course not. Every single scholar I consulted said this. It had to be Paul. It had to be. It says in verse 58 of chapter 8, or 7, sorry, um, that they cast uh, the feet, they laid the garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. Saul was there. Now, obviously, he was not converted on the mo in the moment as he listened to this sermon. But in Paul, what is striking is, is that it's basically an explication, a fleshing out of the themes of Stephen's sermon. He was heavily influenced by this sermon. And Stephen's prayer, Lord, don't hold this against them. Well, it was answered, at least in the case of Saul, who we all know was converted on the road to Damascus and became Paul. You see, Paul never saw someone like Stephen before praying for his enemies while they kill him. It changed him. The hater became the hated. He followed in Stephen's footsteps. You know, we live, we live in such strange times, friends. I'm still, I don't know what's going on in my heart. I'm not going to reveal too much, but oh, i got all kinds of stuff going on in my head and my heart lately. And one of the things that I'm trying to wrap my head around is we live in a culture that increasingly dislikes what we believe, that increasingly finds our message distasteful, finds our beliefs unattractive and even repulsive and yet we also live in a culture that is casting about for some foundation on which to build their lives and more and more I hear stories of non-Christians just being attracted to real Christians and the way they live they don't like what they believe but they cannot help but be attracted to their lifestyle I have it with my own neighbors I, have, I don't know I, like my kids are you guys are awesome, but my kids aren't that awesome, really, in like real, on a, real life. But I tell you, our neighbors, they come over and they go, what's with your weird teenagers with smiles on their faces? And they talk to you guys. And that's just like us. Imagine if your neighbors saw you with your better family. No, my, fam my, my kids are good. They're strangely attracted to what our faith offers, even though they do not like at all what our faith had at home. Last thing, look at verse 1 and then verse 4. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Remember, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, look, you're going to be my witnesses through Ju uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Big task. Problem was, was that 
the Holy Spirit came, and the Christians just stuck around in Jerusalem. And not until persecution happened did the Christians actually leave Jerusalem and start going all over the place. So persecution, suffering, led to the spread of the gospel. And in verse 4, it just blows my mind. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It wasn't the apostles who went about preaching the word. It wasn't just the professional evangelists that went about preaching the word. It wasn't ministers who were trained in seminary who went about preaching the word. It was everybody. Now think about it. You're a Christian, you're living in Jerusalem, you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Because of your faith, persecution starts. They killed Stephen on that day, and on that day, persecution started spreading to the rest of the church, meaning that they were hunting for more bodies. And you said, it's not safe for us to live here anymore because we're going to get killed. So you pack up all your kids, you take whatever you can fit on your back, and you take off. And you run, and you look for another place to live. Now, if it's your faith... And your belief in Jesus that was the cause of your persecution, does it not make sense that you'd say, okay, let's just keep the Jesus stuff on the down low while we get out of Dodge and finally make it up to our, our new home in Antioch or Alexandria or wherever you're going, and then we'll sort of find the Christians there and we'll be very, very careful to reveal that we're Jesus followers and then eventually maybe we can be open. Look, doesn't make sense. Everywhere they went, they were spreading the gospel. The very thing that was the cause of their suffering, they were declaring. Why? They saw Stephen, and they heard him. And they saw Stephen looking up into heaven, and Stephen seeing Jesus standing at the throne of the Father, and they said, He's there for me too. They saw Stephen give his life to this cause. And they were inspired to give their life for this cause. You, you, know, you know how that happens, eh? You know, you, you read the stories of great martyrs and it just makes you want to follow Jesus all the more. Jesus is at the throne. He is interceding for you. He's interceding for me. I don't know why I'm so timid. I just don't get it. It makes no sense if this is true. He's right there, looking down upon your life and mine and saying, I spilt my blood for you, and I am now reigning over the universe for you. Nothing can touch you without my permission, and whatever I allow to touch you will only be used to build your character and to strengthen your faith. You cannot lose. You cannot lose. You cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, we cannot lose. And yet we are so weak. Ay, ay, ay. Father, forgive us for our weakness. Thank you for being so patient with us. Give us the vision that Stephen had of you in your glorious throne room, interceding on our behalf and make us bold. Make us bold for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.